Hello, and welcome to the Platform Podcast, hosted by Marketplace Risk's L. Tucker, a former journalist who writes, speaks, and consults on the sharing and gig economy. L. is also the chair of the Marketplace Risk Advisory Board. Please note, this podcast has been prepared for informational purposes and is not legal advice by the Marketplace Risk team or the presenters. The material discussed should not be construed as legal advice or a legal opinion on any specific issue. We urge you to consult a lawyer concerning your own situation and any specific legal questions you may have. Please contact us at info at marketplacerisk.com and we can put you in touch with the appropriate professional. And now, without further ado, I will hand things over to Al. Hello and welcome to the Platform Podcast. This is the final episode of Series 3 and we have a brilliant guest to finish off the third series of the podcast and that is Albert Young who is partner at King & Spalding. Welcome Albert to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me Al. Now I have been reading your bio on the King & Spalding website because obviously I wanted to be really sure about exactly what you do which we're going to get into soon but I would really like to know from you as well how you define yourself because on the website we talk here about um, you know you your specialism really in tech startups which is amazing and which is obviously how you come to know the marketplace risk team so well and and have featured on many of our webinars but tell me a bit a bit more about that and how you came to be involved specifically from a legal side with tech startups how did you get into this and what what do you actually do sure um I think that my practice, I love what I do. I get to work on the most novel legal issues for the most interesting clients, particularly platform clients. I think that's why you, Jeremy, and I have hit it off fabulously over the years. I do find my practice a little bit odd and a little bit hard to describe. So what I usually tell people is I have a hybrid practice that blends litigation plus a little bit of regulatory enforcement issues plus pre-litigation advising. And let me explain what that means. Uh, I'm trained as a classic litigator because in the United States, there's obviously quite a bit of litigation and technology companies are certainly not spared from that. And so, um, you know, there are subspecialties of litigation. And so, for example, you might find some people that do consumer litigation, some people that do employment litigation, some people that do white collar regulatory enforcement actions. I think one reason my practice has this interesting hybrid vibe is that I touch lots of different types of risk for kind of all of the different ways that particularly technology companies experience risk. So I'm trained as a classic litigator with a focus on class actions when a bunch of people or a bunch of consumers or a bunch of workers try to sue a technology company and say that they've been treated badly. Um, I do have this interesting blend of both consumer class action and employment class actions, which, um, again, arises from the fact that my technology clients face both. So a lot of what you're going to hear in terms of my practice is I have a practice that actually focuses not on one sub-industry or one subset of problems, but really the panoply of problems that small-stage innovative startups to big, giant technology companies face. 
Now, that's just even the classic litigation piece. Um, I've had the great fortune of being in-house on a couple short occasions with a really exciting startup. And so from my time in-house, I also have this interesting crisis management practice, which involves helping companies with uh, technology investigations. And then sometimes, uh, you probably have seen the news, more and more government regulators or government agencies are beginning to scrutinize technology companies. And it really requires somebody who both speaks technology internally, who can help lead those internal investigations, and then translate that product or translate that technology in a way that diffuses the government regulators' concerns about the company. So that's the kind of crisis management uh, investigation portion of my practice, again, arises from the very specific needs of tech companies. The last piece, um, it doesn't get as much news, but it is also one of the most common reasons people reach out to me is pre-litigation advising. Um, as someone who has been in-house and touched lots of different things from marketing to product rollouts to privacy issues. Um, I'm very, uh, I feel very comfortable speaking with kind of different teams within a technology company. And so that means um, I can help with quite a bit of pre-litigation advising, very familiar with fast-moving startups who are trying to grow quickly. Um, so pretty familiar with giving business forward advising while still where we can, mitigating risk. It's kind of all of those kind of flow together in this very complicated practice. Hmm. It's not the easiest to describe, but I do think it's a hybrid practice that's born out of the very interesting client set that I've had the fortune of working with. It's really interesting, and I wonder how long it's existed in this form, because presumably when you were studying law, and I don't actually know how old you are, and I'm not going to ask you, but I'm guessing that things have evolved quite quickly probably over the last decade and I wonder what you know how this evolved for you and and when you started to feel that this was the direction you wanted to move in well uh I look 25 I assure you so (laughs) it um it's great um but I am a little older than 25 and so the way that it developed for me is that um I was trained as a classic litigator I actually grew up in a fantastic uh, small litigation boutique, which meant that you had to learn lots of different types of law at the same time, employment law, consumer law, uh, business litigation, when two technology companies wage war with each other. And um, certainly, I think part of my education was going in-house, you know, with a wonderful kind of um, technology company. So you learn that way as well. What I've come to notice that distinguishes my practice is Um, I really like tricky issues where there's no existing legal roadmap. That was true when I was in law school. Um, Actually, if you look at the the history of my practice, I started as a younger lawyer, as an appellate lawyer, which generally means, you know, obviously you'll do any appeal, but most of the time you are taking appeals on issues where there isn't really an existing legal roadmap or you think you can expand the law here or there. I have found that training to be exceptionally useful as I've been building out a technology practice. And and it's this appetite and really hunger to kind of know, wow, this is an unsettled area of law. Wait, these are areas where my disruptive clients can actually push, you know, in the early days. Was rideshare a taxi, a limo, or neither? Are workers 
W-2 employees or independent contractors or neither, right? Um, these types of gray areas are constantly being posed by technology companies. And so when people ask me, well, Albert, what's the Venn diagram? You started as an appellate lawyer, now you're a tech lawyer. Mm. Those don't obviously go together. In the middle of that Venn diagram is a kind of deep capacity and willingness to kind of dig deep with my tech clients to go, got it. You have a truly neither nor product or business model. How do we explain that to courts, to juries, to regulators? And that kind of capacity to kind of get in the weeds to learn fairly technical information, but then translate it in a in a business forward, understandable way um, is really what I love most about my practice. It's interesting how, uh, as a side note, I think sometimes earlier in our careers, we can do things and be led by things that don't necessarily make, you know, not make sense at the time, but we don't know where that's going to go. But it's actually later on that we can look back and, and the, the roadmap makes more sense. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think what I knew earlier in my career, more than what area of law, you know, if you start your career in a large, large law firm, there's pretty early on a pressure for you to learn one thing to specialize in. I'm quite grateful to have started at a smaller law firm. Actually, I started clerking on the federal bench. Um, I clerked on the Ninth Circuit with a wonderful, wonderful judge. And um, as a clerk or as a young lawyer at a litigation boutique where you're expected to handle lots of different types of cases, it really rounds out your skill set. My experience with that was that it took me a lot longer because you just have so many different more subject areas that you have to become facile in because it really is, you know, most lawyers specialize in consumer law or employment law or privacy issues fairly early that I um, kind of, it took a little bit longer to kind of touch those different areas, understand what matters in those different ways. And so um, I, I just really, I benefited from kind of the, the slower growth, but then kind of a deeper practice, which mm. now I can bring to bear the full toolkit for my, my tech clients. Mm. And I'm going to ask you one more thing about, about this and your role, because, uh, and we haven't prepared this, so I, I don't want to put you on the spot, but what I'm fascinated by is your, your roles sound very particular in a way to us law and litigation etc is there an equivalent type of person in say for example the uk or europe do you meet people that are like you and do what you do in other places or has your role been defined not just by the types of companies but by us um you, you know legal um ways as well it might be a little bit more U.S. specific in part because I have found that the U.S. tends to be more litigious. Mm. So in the realm of litigation, I think good lawyers have to be familiar at least with different types of U.S. litigation. So we have entire legal publications, which kind of you can skim to get a surface level understanding of the different types of technology risks. Uh, I just have happened to dig deeper uh, into some of the sub areas a little bit more, again, because I represent a lot of platforms and marketplaces. Mm. My experience, uh, and we actually have, um, you know, at King and Spalding, I have offices in London, Paris. Um, so I have had some interactions with my international colleagues. I do think there's a little bit of um, 
earlier specialization, I think maybe in other countries. And again, less experience with a whole. <laughs> mm. I mean, if you're hit by a tidal wave of litigation, you remember what the tidal wave looks like. <laughs> and so, um, you know, I, I don't get the sense that the forces of litigation are quite as strong internationally. So that could be one international difference. Mm. But what I also will say is I don't find many people in the U.S. that also touch as many different I, I i have friends who are also people who work a lot with technology companies for example i have friends who are technologists who specialize in intellectual property and even within intellectual property you specialize in patent law which is very different than other subspecialties right so even within the u.s there is in general um kind of a need to specialize. Um, mm. And again, I just have been very lucky. You know, I think Jeremy, actually, our, our friend Jeremy, and um, obviously a very important person to marketplace risk, he has a similarly broad skill set. I think I've probably done litigation longer. And so when he and I kind of brainstorm about potential risks for our kind of common clients or, or common in-house friends, um, he is able to follow much more than I would say the, the kind of average litigator, like mm. a patent litigator hearing some of the consumer or employment issues that I handle maybe wouldn't be as facile. So mm. um, really even within the U.S., I should say that it's yeah. a little bit, um, yeah, it's different. So rather than ask you, I think just to, to get an idea here of, Rather than ask you, you know, what companies hire you, I think a good way of asking you this question is more when companies hire you. Because I think when we're thinking in terms of tech startups, it is often their journey and their scaling journey, which defines when they would need um, a lawyer like you. And so tell me a bit more about that. When do tech companies need somebody like you at what point in their journey sure um in my mind as i've kind of had the fortune of looking back and i do now have the fortune of working with lots of different types of platforms i've come to kind of sort technology clients at least and i do work with some non-technology clients but i do tend to sort technology clients into kind of three different stages of development and therefore kind of what are the types of issues that they tend to face. Now, before I get into those three buckets, what I will say is, you know, I started my technology practice, I was mid-career, and um, I think it's fair to say, you know, Lyft was uh, my earliest client. They're a phenomenal platform and marketplace. They've done amazing things in the market, and they were the perfect quintessential example of somebody kind of in the in the middle of the marketplace where no one quite knew what to do with them and their business model. And so, um, you know, over time I started representing more of the gig economy, but really it's expanded. Um, I represent a whole bunch of e-commerce companies, um, some telehealth recently, and also social media and social content companies. So when you look at the different sub industries of my technology clients, they're surprisingly broad you know i really thought that there was an early point in my career where i was just going to be purely a, a gig economy uh, lawyer but it's really grown over time and my observation about why that has been is because of the three stages so i i tend first to kind of get outreaches from i would say early stage companies 
that are trying to figure out where they want to be in an increasingly crowded uh, tech marketplace. So, for example, I'm sorry, in marketplace there, mm-hmm. I mean the whole technology <laughs> industry, right? Yeah. Um, you know, for so in this first bucket of tech clients, we're talking maybe early stage companies. Um, sometimes, for example, Jeremy and I will brainstorm, you know, on a particular really early stage. Now, some of these technology startups, real, real startups, maybe haven't even made it past, you know, Series B funding, for example. They are very focused on here's what we think is a business niche that we can take advantage of. But they're only beginning to understand, wait, what does this mean in terms of legal risk? And so usually the legal thought process is somewhat behind the business thought process. And so these companies usually don't have in-house lawyers or maybe only have one in-house lawyer who's drinking from a fire hose (laughs) and really trying to juggle lots of different types of companies. And so for these types of really early stage companies, they probably need a little bit of funding in order to afford um, you know, outside counsel, but it's also really, really helpful because when done correctly and early enough, the prophylactic preemptive part of my practice can be very helpful. For example, we can help set up more protective online terms of service, um, something Jeremy and I feel very passionately about. And so that can stave off some class actions, for example. One of the most interesting things we'll probably talk about a little bit later is for early stage companies that are going to have a lot of user generated content, whether it's social media posts or, you know, maybe even users kind of starting small businesses and putting them on your peer to peer platform. Um, I've noticed some earlier stage companies reaching out to me who, um, they're trying to get ahead. They, they know that they're going to have a lot of problems that arise from user content that, frankly, they can't control. And so we begin, again, helping them devise, for example, can you use the Communications Decency Act early, early in your process? And if you commit as a early stage startup that, yes, we want to avail ourselves of this important federal defense or this federal immunity, how do we do that? How can we shape the development of a product so that it doesn't undermine this legal defense? Can't both things be true, that business moves forward and the legal defense remains intact? So that's really that first bucket, people who are thinking preemptively about risk. But and do, do they, Albert, do they get in touch with you when there's a problem or do they get in touch with you just because their investors have told them to? Or what, what prompts that? you know or is it just part of their business strategy sometimes the sophisticated vcs or investors right flag the legal issue and then the legal issue and then the in-house business person kind of goes out um maybe you know one of the interesting things at the marketplace risk conference is that you actually see quite a few business people who are non-lawyers there right and so they go to these types of conferences and they may see us talking about risk and even if they're not in-house lawyers, they often will reach out because they're thinking early on about risk. So I would say so far um, for these early stage companies, plaintiffs are usually not trying to sue them yet just because they don't, they present the 
the juiciest target for expensive litigation. Um, so, but these are proactive business people who mm-hmm. go to conferences or who can, you know, who just follow the news and can see, wait a minute, maybe Lyft and Uber are being sued for things. How does that affect our company? Would that derail mm-hmm. my fundraising process? So I think proactive business people or investors are usually the people reaching out before lawsuits. Right. That does lead to the second category, which is most co- most often I am, I am contacted once a lawsuit hits. Right. And that's when things, you know, you've got to really sort of jump in and, and help at that point. There's no sort of messing about, presumably. Correct. And, you know, again, there are a lot of different litigation counsel out there. Um, how this usually arises is I've been very lucky to um, have a reputation um, in the kind of platform marketplace space. And so um, more often than not, actually, this is a a client that might reach out to Jeremy or that might reach out to one of my existing clients and say, Hey, we just got hit by this new lawsuit. Who have you used for it? Like, have you used somebody for TCPA class actions or, or who that understands the communications decency act issues. And the single biggest source uh, for which I'm very grateful, um, is really client to client referrals. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it allows a, a, a lot because it's incredibly stressful. If you are a, business, particularly if this is one of your first piece of, pieces of litigation, you need to explain to the business, what does this mean? You need to come up with a game plan early. Frankly, if the lawsuit has even a grain of truth to it, litigation for really successful companies is an opportunity, not a crisis, but like an opportunity to both win in the public sphere, but also do some private internal house cleaning mm-hmm. and that's generally my my approach is, is obviously you know we always litigate to win but we also use the opportunity to help in-house legal teams usually by this point the 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 second bucket of clients have at least one in-house lawyer you know it's because they've just reached a stage where they face litigation and so they have a general counsel or somebody like that and, um, you know, usually the general counsel speaks to some of my other general counsels or people within the industry. And uh, I've been very lucky to largely just do the client to client referral system. And then who did you suggest that there was a, a third much more advanced along the scaling line um, type of company that you work for or who, you know, who, who else in terms of the timeline? might hire your yes. services. I would say that the third bucket of company that I've had the good fortune to work for are far more developed. They're much later stage in terms of fundraising. They have larger in-house legal teams. Um, maybe they've even gone public recently. And what they do is they begin noticing patterns, right? So in the second bucket, maybe we're talking about first lawsuit or first that type of lawsuit, right? Maybe you've faced a lot of worker lawsuits, but this is your first TCPA litigation and you have no idea. You have no roadmap for the new type of lawsuit. In this third bucket, I would say these are larger, more sophisticated tech companies, but what they want to know is why? (laughs) Why is this happening over and over again? Um, and I'm brought in uh, either as strategy council or national coordinating council 
because rather than have entirely disparate and, and, and sometimes inconsistent strategies, if you're facing something in California versus Massachusetts, or for example, you're asserting that workers are independent contractors in employment litigation, but you're not as careful about doing that in consumer litigation. Oftentimes for a sophisticated later stage tech company, having strategy council or kind of national coordinating council can be really helpful to, to, to notice patterns about the fundamental business model, uh, to impose a little bit of consistency and um, really regularity in the legal positions that you take publicly, and then also kind of help you like make tweaks like, hey, have you noticed that if you change your peer-to-peer platform in this way, you can subsequently use it in later litigation that actually will reduce your overall risk. So it, it, it's kind of like things come full circle. This third bucket is, if you think about the first bucket is pre-litigation, the second bucket is mid-litigation, <laughs> and then the third bucket is kind of post-litigation. But really, post-litigation is a form of pre-litigation, right? Yeah. What are the patterns that we notice to avoid really the next step of problem or risk? Um, it's interesting that tech companies kind of go through the full cycle. So it's almost like the third bucket is let's try not to do as much litigation anymore rather than, um, yeah, rather than just continue in, in the middle one. But how varied and how interesting for you to be working with startups at these various stages and, and be able to, you know, help them to to move up to the, you know, to the next stage. But Albert, you and I, we've been chatting and time has passed and I've realised that we're going to have to do an Albert part two because we've barely scratched the surface. So what I do want to do is talk to you briefly and then hopefully we can get you on another podcast to talk about all the other things we plan to talk about. But what I do want to talk to you before we finish up, because we do like to keep our podcasts within the half hour, is about the difference, and I find this fascinating, it was something that you'd mentioned to me, the difference between what startups think they know about all this and what they actually know and I imagine um, and I say this quite a lot in these podcasts that quite often startup teams especially early stage do have a marketing person and a tech person and and, you know quite often won't have anyone in um, you know with any legal experience what what do you find maybe you could give us a couple of takeaways what do you find are the things that that startup founders think they know but really don't? I think this is actually a great way to close this session because um, we just finished talking about the life cycle of startups, mm. right? As you become more more successful, um, I try to explain to clients, particularly early stage clients, who are not that sophisticated with risk, that business success begets litigation. Sometimes you do something wrong, but sometimes people are just watching you and that they're watching you more as you become more successful because you you seem like a bag of money to some plaintiff's lawyers and you just, you know, uh, you become an easier target. So I, I think if I had to distill everything into a couple lessons, having now observed lots of different sub-industries and lots of different stages of startups and disruptors, the, the few lessons I would say, number one, um, 
Well, I, I'm putting aside the earlier one that mm. I do, in fact, look 25. Of course. Um, the first lesson is people like tech, but not tech companies. <laughs> and this <laughs> feels like a deflating thing for me to say, but I actually think it can be useful when particularly non-lawyers look at, I, I've been in, in all hands meetings. I have been in rooms where I'm the only lawyer and I'm filled with excited entrepreneurs and marketing people. We are all drinking the Kool-Aid of how amazing some of this technology is. And in fact, I do believe most of my clients have incredible technology. That is not the same when you're thinking about platform risk as them liking your technology company. I think when you add that word to it, something happens where you should expect actually that they could very much like and want your product to continue, but not blink to sue you as a company, <laughs> providing the thing that they're very excited about. Like a so fair I, weather I, friend in a way. <laughs> oh, but I mean, you can't, you can't believe some of the things that I've seen in complaints where they say this technology is incredible. It changes our lives and we want hundreds of millions of dollars from you <laughs> in the same, in the same complaint. The second, I think big picture takeaway, we can delve into this later. I regularly, even when I'm dealing with in-house lawyers, don't think that people understand how technology is discussed in courts. And as somebody who time and again has to go into court rooms in front of judges who, by the way, are often much, much older, much, much older than the people who work in technology companies, if you could take a second lesson away from it, you should expect that courts are older than your technology companies and therefore suspicious about the speed and the overpromising of tech startups. You know, when you think about what makes a younger startup successful, it's moving faster, it's eliminating friction, and frankly, it's promising that you're really going to change either a consumer's life or a worker's life or whatever. But those very things that are exciting as a business reason absolutely get scrutinized by courts once I go in to defend your company. And so part of the difficulty is finding the right balance where you're talking truthfully about where you are as a technology company, you're building excitement for investment reasons, but you're also keeping a long-term view of, wait, what would this look like to a court or a judge, mm -hmm. particularly who is older, for example, who can't read our terms of service that clearly because the print is really small to mm -hmm. their kind of, you know, bifocal eyes. So these are things that I regularly have to prepare for when explaining my tech, my tech clients. Um, and so I, I think when I report back, this is what I've noticed that, that these two lessons, even sophisticated technology companies underestimate those things. And I think we live in a bubble in a way in our marketplace technology world sometimes, don't we? And we don't appreciate how some of these things look to to other worlds like the legal world and like you say to a judge. And I think sometimes it's good for us to, you know, to have a, a bit of a wake up call and actually look outside that and stuff that seems simple and, you know, like these terms of service to us might, you know, not seem that way at all to someone else. Um, so these are great, Albert. Thank you for these takeaways. And do promise me that you will um, come back on the platform podcast and we can talk about all the other things we've planned. And hopefully we'll see you in person 
at some of our live events which are coming up in the fall. Looking forward to it. Uh, you and Jeremy know how to reach me and really thank you for this opportunity to spend a little time with you. Thank you, Albert. Thank you for tuning into the Platform Podcast. Be sure to follow us on social media at Marketplace Risk. Tune in next week for another podcast.